filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. We're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 17 through 21. Again, continuing our study, or our theme, uh, the body life. The body life. Look at verse 17. Paul says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice verse 17 begins with, Therefore. And I know you've heard me say a million times, but here we go again. The therefore always refers back to what was just said. And in this instance, it refers back to to Paul's call for believers to walk like those who have been raised from the dead and are living in Christ's light, back in verse 14. So he's referring back to verse 14. He says, do not be unwise here, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be unwise points back to what Paul said earlier about believers not being unwise and understand what the will of the Lord is, emphasizes more clearly his request to walk wisely, according to verse 15. Because there's a need to use our time wisely today, all the time, but especially in these days that we're living. The unwise believer who believes in a foolish way tries to do things, tries to work separate from God's will. And if you try to do things according to your ideas and your, your own uh, strength, you're going to be weak, you're going to be frustrated, and you're going to be ineffective in your personal life and in your work for God. And the only way to stop this foolishness is to find out what God, what God's will is for you and to follow it. God's basic will for you is found in the Bible, where we find His perfect and needed guidelines for knowing and doing what pleases Him. But the will that Paul seems to be talking about here is the Lord's specific leading of each believer. And that's different for all of us. Even though God's plans and directions for each believer aren't found in Scripture, the general principles are. That is, the general principles for understanding them are clear in the Scriptures. Now, God doesn't promise to show us His will through visions, coincidences, or miracles. But He doesn't leave us guessing either. What God wants more than anything else is for all of His children is that they know and obey His will. And He gives us every possible help to know and to obey His will. God's basic will for every person is that they be saved through Jesus Christ and to be filled with the Spirit. To be Spirit-filled, as Paul goes on to teach in verse 18. Now, we experience God's will by being sanctified. That means set apart. To be set apart from sin and set apart to God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, This is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will is for you to be sanctified, set apart for, 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 uh, from sin and set apart, to, uh, set apart to Him. 
And we enjoy His will when we submit to God and to others. Submission is believing that God is able to do His will in my life through the people He's placed in authority over me. And that's a crucial definition because it focuses the attention on God and not on the person that's over you. We read, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Look at verse 18 now. Paul goes on, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or ruin, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this brings us to one of the most important passages dealing with Christian living. Walking worthy of the calling with which you were called. Back in chapter 4, verse 1. Being controlled by the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary for living the Christian life by God's standards. We really can't understand God's way or or uh, faithfully follow Him without the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is not an option, He's not a luxury, He's a necessity. He's like breath to our lungs. We can't live without breath, we can't live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. Before Paul commanded us to be filled with the Spirit and gave us the fruit of the Spirit-filled life in verses 18 through 21, he first compared being filled with the Spirit with not being drunk with wine. You see, the Lord is an inspiring Spirit. Wine is an intoxicating and degrading one. Getting drunk with wine is an obstacle to a is an obstacle to and counterfeit and a counterfeit of being filled with the spirit. And Paul's point is that getting drunk is a sign of darkness, verse 8, and foolishness, verse 15. But being filled with the spirit, Holy Spirit is the source of a believer's ability to walk in light and to walk in wisdom. As long as I've been a Christian, Drinking has been an issue in the church. And churches have different opinions about it. And like many other things, the kind of wine that the scripture speaks about has the potential for evil or good. Now the grape juice at once, uh, at one time, was probably good, like everything that else that God created. But because of the fall, it got its potential for evil. Because fermentation is a type of decay. And scripture sometimes condemns wine, but it always condemns drunkenness. And the Bible warns us over and over again about drinking wine. Yet it doesn't forbid it. And even commands it in certain situations. Like Paul said to Timothy, drink drink a little wine for your stomach. So what should a believer do? Well, because that, 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 what Paul brings up here about not being uh, f- uh, filled with, with um, intoxicating drink, I want to give some guidelines that you can use regarding drinking. And if you answer them honestly, using God's word, they'll be helpful to you. First of all, is the wine today the same as in Bible times? The answer is clearly no. The wine of Bible times was, was, was either non-alcoholic or only slightly alcoholic. 
and wasn't the same as the unmixed wine or the, uh, or the wine diluted with water of our day. Even the more civilized pagans of Bible times would have considered the drinking of modern wines to be, to be barbaric and irresponsible and could lead to madness and death. Second, is drinking necessary? In Bible times, like in many parts of the world today, good drinking water didn't exist or it was scarce. The safest drink was wine. And wine that had alcohol was specifically safe because it actually purified the water. So the answer is no for most believers today. It is unnecessary to drink wine. Third, is it the best choice? Is it the best choice? Because drinking wine is not specifically and totally forbidden in Scripture, and because it's not necessary for believers in most parts of the world today, drinking is a matter of choice. And so here's the question. Is it the best choice? The answer is no. Because it's seldom the best choice. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, You say I'm allowed to do anything? He says, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Fourth, is drinking habit forming? Well, to some degree, yes. There's a, a Japanese proverb that says, first the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. Fifth, is drinking potentially destructive? To some, I guess, to some degree, yes. Is drinking likely to offend other Christians? Yes. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul said, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, this freedom that, that, you, that, you, that you have, uh, beware that it becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. And we are to be concerned for the weaker brother and sister. If something that I do where I'm okay in it or it doesn't affect me, how's it going to affect my brother or sister? I don't want to hurt them in any way. I don't want them to have any problems in their walk with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.23. Again, all things are lawful for me, Paul said, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. That is, that they don't build up. Let no one seek his own. Notice. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. That's the key. I'm to do what's best for the other person. So I have this right. So I like to do it. So I choose to do it. So, you know, I'm okay doing it. Hey, well, what about the other person? The other person says, well, so-and-so does it. Why don't I? And guess what? They may not be as strong. They might not be able to handle it. And guess what? They become an alcoholic. Or they begin to have problems with it. Seventh question, is drinking likely to hurt your testimony? Yes. Do you want to reach people for Jesus Christ? Do you want to be a good example to those who aren't saved? Then you won't use your liberty to drink or to do anything else that would cause them to be spiritually offended or misled. If you're going to drink, do it in the privacy of your own home. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 10, 8, 10, in case anyone sees you, for if anyone sees you. So based on all the above questions, 
is it right? The answer would be no. Ask yourself this question about drinking. And this might be the most important one. Can I do it in front of others and in front of God in total faith and confidence that it's right? Paul clearly said in Romans 14, 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Can I do it feeling a, having a good conscience about it? Or do I do it and I just go, oh, and I'm just uncomfortable, and oh, what, is, what are other people thinking, and what, you know, how, what are, do, how do they see me, and I'm a Christian. And, hey, if you can't do it in total faith, then don't do it. That's what the Bible tells us. Even if we believe that something is not sinful in itself, if we can't do it with a totally free conscience, we're sinning. Because we do it against our conscience. And here's my favorite that you hear all night. Well, Jesus drank wine. But again, it wasn't the wine like we have today. And if you're going to use Jesus as your example for drinking wine or drinking purity, why not follow his example in everything else in your life that you do? Why is it only drinking wine? People want, oh, well, Jesus did it. Well, what about he was holy? How about he was, he was you know, a, a godly person and, and you know, he, he, did, he did his will you know, for the Father? How about we're living for him and everything else that he did? Paul isn't teaching here about the evils of drunkenness, even though drunkenness was a big sin in the ancient, in ancient days. And it's still the habitual sin of the day. Paul wasn't lecturing on drunkenness. He's making a comparison. He said, don't be drunk with wine. Why not? Because it's a temporary stimulation. It will fire up the flesh, but then it will let you down and it will lead you down a destructive road. So is that what you need? Is that what you want? People today feel a void in their life. A lot of people have voids in their life and they feel a need for something. And they try to fill that void with all kinds of things. One of them is drunk, drinking. People turn to alcohol to fill the void. And if they're not believers, they don't have any other resource. But you see, the child of God is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is due to the experience, uh, is to, is, it's to be to the experience of the believer. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul uses again the similarity of a man who drinks. The man who drinks is possessed by the drink, by the wine. And you can tell when a man is possessed by the drink. You can tell when the man is drunk. In comparison, it's the Holy Spirit who should be the one to possess the believer. The believer is to be under the heavenly influence of the Holy Spirit to fill that void in their life. And when we're filled by the Holy Spirit, it means that we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. There's evidence that the Holy Spirit controls my life. Our whole being, everything about us is to be entirely yielded up to the Holy Spirit and to be possessed and controlled by only Him. These commands here are given to the believer 
This feeling is a continuous feeling of the believer's life for strength and work. The spirit-filled believer walks wisely. And the spirit-filled believer is characterized by the fruit of the spirit in their life. Love, peace, joy, gentleness. Was it something that we did to receive the Holy Spirit? No. It was by our faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit renews us and lives in us. But we need the filling of the Holy Spirit to serve the Lord. The filling. That means to be filled with the Spirit. And to be filled with the Spirit is to start every morning with the Lord. Seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to walk in the Spirit of the Lord. I can't do it on my own. I need your power. I need your help. And we need to start every day, first thing we get out of bed, by asking the Holy Spirit, Lord, fill me. Fill me. Anoint me. Because we need His filling so very much. That's what enables us to go out and fight the good fight, to endure affliction, to get victory over the temptations that we might face during the day. And that's why a lot of Christians get beat up every day out there in this world. They haven't got that fill of the Holy Spirit. They haven't got the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that enables them to get the victory over whatever comes their way. We need His filling so much. You may have been filled with the Spirit yesterday. You may have been filled with the Spirit last week. But that's not going to help you today. It's not enough for today. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will do something for God. You will be walking in the Spirit. But that doesn't mean you'll have enough for tomorrow. You need another filling for tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And this is why some people can be used mightily for God one day and then feel totally empty the next. We need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit every single day. And this is what helps us to walk in the Spirit. Yeah, we may stumble and we may fall sometimes. But like a child learning to walk, we get up, we try again, and someday that child will be able to walk. God wants us to learn to walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. And again, we need the Spirit every day. Remember when the children of Israel went out to pick up the manna? How often did they have to do it? Every day. God says, you can't store, don't don't try storing it up. And he said, you can't live on yesterday's manna and you can't store it up. That was a picture, again, bread, bread being the the bread from heaven and Jesus Christ, the bread of life. The the picture is, I need it every day. God wanted the the children of Israel to come out every day to meet with him to get that fresh bread, that fresh filling. The nourishment to live every day and to do every day what they needed to do. They couldn't depend on yesterday's manna and they couldn't depend on on tomorrow's. 
Every day they had to go out and collect manna. And remember it said they would, have, they would collect enough for that day. You can't you live on yesterday's. You can't store it up. You've got to have it every single day. Look at verse 19. Speaking, uh, speaking to, did I, let me see, did I read verse 18? Let me read 18 through 19. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody uh, in your heart to the Lord. Now Paul gives us signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, when you're filled with your Holy Spirit, there's evidence in your life that you are filled. Hymns. Hymns were written by men to glorify God. The spiritual songs were less formal than psalms or hymns. This is the display of the infilling of the Holy Spirit because he brings joy into the life of the believer. There are so many unjoyful Christians. There's no joy. Why isn't we should be the happiest people in the world, the most joyful, I should say. Happiness depends on what's going on in our life. It depends upon our environment. But joy is the joy of the Lord, something that can't be taken from you. I think that if there was more joy in believers, we'd see a lot more believer people coming to the Christ. Hymns and songs and, you know, you know, we always hear that, that, that term, hymn in the world. Oh, that person's got a song in their heart this morning. Well, you know what? The believers should have a song in their heart every morning. Every morning. It's the display of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because he brings joy into the life of the believer. Verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's an attitude of thankfulness. How often do we thank God every day for all the things that He's blessed us with? Everything like like being able to walk. Simple things that we take for granted. Being able to walk, to talk, to use our hands. To hear, to smell, to taste. Those are the, the, the wonderful blessings that we have in life. You know, and a lot of times I, I'm, as I drive down the road, I, I see you know, a lot of the, the people, you know, on the streets. You know, hunched over, limping. They look lost. And they are. Just in, in just really bad physical shape. And I just sit and I go, Lord, you know, that could be me. Why have you been so good to me? So gracious to me. You know, and, and, and instead of looking and going, oh, man, what a mess. And you know what? That could be me tomorrow. And I just say, oh, Lord, thank you so much. I, I really, I have no reason to complain. So thank you, Lord. And you know, and if, and if we look around seriously at our life, 
we have everything to be thankful for. Everything. But that's another sign of the filling of the Spirit. An attitude of thankfulness. We don't give God enough thanks today. We all should be saying, praise the Lord and thank you, Lord, for your unspeakable gift. My, the undeserving gift. And when you thank Him, when, when, you're, when, <clears throat> when you thank Him, and when you thank Him from the heart, unless you thank Him from the heart, it's no good unless it's from the heart. The filling of this Holy Spirit produces a life of thankfulness so that we can honestly thank God for all things. All things. We shouldn't have to go around telling everyone you love them. You shouldn't have to go around telling everybody that you love them. Show them that you love them. Be filled with the Spirit so there will be love and there will be joy and there will be thanksgiving in your life. This is very practical. We don't have anything worthwhile in ourselves. We need to go to God. We need to tell Him, Lord, I am empty. I need the filling of the Holy Spirit. I need your Spirit, Lord, so that I can live for you. We need to recognize that we can't do it by ourselves, but He can do it through us. Verse 21. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. The general principle of mutual submission is submitting to one another. Submitting to one another. To submit to one another not only is a fruit of of the Holy Spirit, But it's also the heart of the more specific principles of authority and submission. And we're going to see now, as Paul says here, that we are to submit to one another. Then he's going to, as we go on in our our future studies here, we're going to see how that relates to husbands and wives. How they're to submit to one another. Oh yeah, it says submit to one another, husbands and wives, not just wives, submit to the husband. I'll be pointing that out in detail as we get into that part. But as husbands and wives submit to one another, as parents and children submit to one another, as masters and slaves or employees and employers submit to one another. And one of the saddest things today is the increasing destruction of what used to be called the traditional family. It is, we are losing the traditional family. Adultery, sexual sin, homosexuality, abortion, women's liberation, crime, and the preoccupation of sex overall have all contributed to the family's downfall. And each one of these things has a part in the destruction of marriage and the family. Man, we we have to get back to the basics, you guys, and we need to stand up for the basics and and not to be so complacent or maybe just indifferent if we don't have a proper standard governing relation uh, a proper standard that governs relationships if we don't have that which is the word of god if we don't have a proper standard governing relationships people are going to do whatever they think will be meaningful whatever they think will be pleasant whatever they think is okay whatever they think is fulfilling for their relationship in whatever way They can come up with. 
All they can do is experiment and hope that they find, out, find something that works. But all we can expect is the collapse of the family and pretty soon society will follow and I think it's already on its way. And it's time for us as Christians to take a stand for what the Bible has to say, what the Bible has always recognized and what the church has always taught until lately. God's standard for marriage. A man and a woman. God's standard for marriage is His Word. It gives the family meaning. It gives it happiness. It gives it it blessings, reward, and fulfillment. And you know what? The Word of God is the only standard that gives you those results. And yet, people say they're confused. That there's confusion about God's standard for marriage. When you read Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, there's no confusion. He created a man, he created a woman. He brought the woman to the man. And he says, when a man gets married, he's to to cling to his wife. And she's to love and respect him. And they're to have family. I mean, it doesn't, again, it doesn't take a scholar to read that, to figure it out, what it's saying. Unbelievable. There's no confusion about God's standard for marriage and the family in the church. I've been reading the Bible since 1973. Not one page has changed. There's not been one revision. Today in the church, the divorce rate is the same as though, as the as the as the divorce rate in the, in the world. Sixty to seventy percent. We need to stop it. We have the answer. In New Testament times, women weren't considered to be much more than property. Many Jewish men would pray every morning, thanking God they were a, they weren't a Gentile slave or a woman. The Jewish men distorted God's term for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And they divorced their wives for any reason. And that's happening today. They call it today, you know, irreconcilable differences. That just means we can't get along. That's all that means. The Greeks were even worse. And because concubines were a common thing and a wife's role was uh, simply to bear legitimate children and to keep house, Greek men had little reason to divorce their wives and their wives had no way out against them. In Roman society, things were even worse. Divorce was so easy to get that it was often uh, taken advantage of. Many women didn't want to have children because it ruined their looks. It ruined their bodies and feminism became common. The women wanted to do everything men did. Some women went into wrestling, sword fighting, and all kinds of other things that were usually looked at as totally masculine. Women began to lord over men, and more and more women initiated the divorce. Paul admonished believers in Ephesus to live totally opposite to the corrupt, evil, self-centered, and immoral standards of those around them. 
The relationship between a husband and wife was to be modeled after Christ and his church. We'll see that in verses 23 and 25. The relationship between Christian husbands and wives is to be holy and is to be unbreakable, just like between Christ and his church is holy and it's unbreakable. Jesus, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Christian marriages and families are to be so radically different from those in the world. The relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children is to be lived in humility, love, and submission to one another that whenever the authority of, 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 of husbands and, and parents had to be used, it was almost invisible. And the submission of wives and children is nothing more than behaving in the spirit of gracious love. Families are the foundation of society and a society that doesn't protect the family weakens their existence. And when the family goes, everything else of value goes with it. When the things that hold a family together, purpose and discipline of the family are lost, rebellion will thrive. And where rebellion thrives, law, righteousness, and safety can't. The family nourishes and holds society together. But the rebellion <clears throat> that results from the absence of the healthy family only lessens, disrupts, and destroys society. The unbeliever can profit so much by following God's simple guidelines for the family. But understanding and living and enjoying the potential that those principles hold for us can only be experienced by those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. Thus, why we need to get the gospel out. Apart from a life of faith and resources that only Christians have, the principles for marriage and the family that Paul gives us here are irrelevant and won't help much. The basic rule of Paul saying... In verse 21, submitting to one another, the basic rule of submitting to one another has its power and its effectiveness only in the fear of Christ. In other words, only in following what Jesus says. The family can only be what God has designed it to be. There is no other design. That's why marriage and remarriage and the blended families have so many problems. And, and they want answers, but that was never God's design. It was never God's design. It happens. But it was never God's intent, never God's design. And the only rules apply are what was given in Genesis chapter 2. Those are still the rules for all relationships. But when they're blended and there's, and, and, and there's several marriages, you know, it, it, it just complicates things. It's hard enough being married to one person for the rest of your life, much less three or four, and, and all, all that goes with it. The basic rule of submitting to one another has its power and effectiveness only in the fear of Christ. The family can only be what God has designed it to be. 
when the members of the family are what God has designed them to be. That is, conformed to the image of His Son. That's what gives it the power to work. Being conformed into the image of the Son. That that we're all walking like Jesus. Just like a person can, can find fulfillment only in a right relationship with God, it's the same with a family. Only when believing parents and children follow His design for the family in the control and the power of the Holy Spirit can find fulfillment. People who don't know or even recognize God's existence and authority have no desire to accept God's standard for marriage and the family or anything else. If they don't recognize God's existence... Nothing matters. Nothing else will work. They don't have the new nature. They don't have that inner source to totally follow God's standards, even if they wanted to. Only when you know and love Jesus Christ can you understand and want to fulfill His standards. Reverencing and loving Jesus is the source of the spirit of submission. I do it because the Lord asked me to. I do it because I love the Lord. I do it because it's in obedience to what He's asked me to do. Here's the problem. Many people who say they know Jesus as Savior and Lord, they don't live according to His moral, marital, and family laws. Because they're not always filled with His Spirit. And because they live like the world around them, they have no desire or power to obey their Lord in all things. You know, many times when I was doing marriage counseling, they come in, I say, well, this is what the Word says. I know, I know what the Word says. Then I have nothing else to tell you. And I've told them that. You're wasting your time. You know, you're looking for some magic pill or some rain dance or something that that you can do and it'll be all over real quick. Everything's going to be better tomorrow. You have to work at it. And you have to want to work at it. But people would rather walk out than work out. They say, I know. Well, then unless you obey what you know, there's no sense in in even doing anything. If you don't want to do what God's Word says and you say you're a Christian, then there's nothing else for you. There's nothing else for you. They say they know Jesus as Savior, but they don't live according to His moral laws. They have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't have them. And that's why too many Christian couples argue and fight worse than a lot of unbelievers. If Jesus isn't the center of your marriage and home, you really can't label it as Christian. Hey, and there's so much information out there on marriage today. There's books, there's, there, there's marriage conferences, there's seminars, there's counselors everywhere. So we're not lacking for information. We're lacking in, in, dis, in obedience. Why are there so many marital problems in broken families? Because if a believer isn't being filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit, and he's not applying all sufficient word, all, the all-sufficient Word of God, the best counseling in the world will only produce a shallow and temporary help because the heart isn't right. So it can't be empowered. 
But when we're filled with the Spirit and controlled by God's Word, we, we will do what's pleasing to God because His Spirit controls our attitude and our relationships. James asked the question in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure and war in your members? Conflicts in the church, in the home, and in marriage always result from hearts that want their own way rather than God's way. When self insists on having its own, when self insists on standing up for its rights, its wants, its opinions and goals, and, and, and harmony, peace go out the door. The self-centered person is always fighting to get their way and putting others down. But the spirit-filled life is directed toward humility, toward a subordinate position, and it lifts up as it steps down in, sin, in self, selflessness. The spirit-filled believer, Philippians 2, 4 says, looks out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. It's others-centered. Submitting to one another, in verse 21, as Paul says, that comes from a military term, hupotasso. It's a military term meaning to, uh, to arrange or rank under. I put myself under. Spirit-filled Christians rank themselves under one another. The main idea is that of surrendering your rights to another person. But we always stand up for rights. We want to, want to fight for our rights. Could you imagine what our nation would be like if our leaders, military, police, and judges didn't yield to authority? Our nation would fall apart because of lawlessness. It's the same with the church. The writer of Hebrews said, We're to obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. So in closing, as Paul went on to explain in verses 22, chapter 5, 22 through verses 6 through 9, the physical makeup and purpose of the family, like that of the church and of government, requires authority and submission. Every obedient, spirit-filled Christian is to be a submitting Christian, a subordinate Christian. So what Paul has given us now in, these, in, in chapter 5 up to this point, this last verse, submitting to one another, is preparing us now for the submission of wives to husbands, of husbands to God, and of children to parents, and of servants to masters. So I would encourage you to read the next section of chapter 5 and pray and ask God, to help to be submissive to the Word of God, to the Holy Spirit. Because in doing so, you'll be submissive to one another. Father, we thank you so much for your Word. Father, help us to submit to one another in the fear of God. In the fear of God. I submit because, Lord, you've asked me to. I've placed myself under others because you've asked me to, God. Fill me with your spirit, Lord, that I can do what you've called me to do. May that be our prayer today and every day. That we would give you glory. That we would show the world 
what a spirit-filled life looks like, what a spirit-filled family looks like, what a spirit-filled marriage looks like, what a spirit-filled church looks like. Father, we thank you for your word, for your guiding principles. We thank you for the power that you've given us to live as you've called us to live, God. Father, we thank you for the offering we'll receive today, Lord. We thank you so much for your provision and taking care of us. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.